This morning's scripture reading is out of Matthew, verses 1 through 6. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Okay, before we can really start, there's two things you have to understand to be able to understand uh, this passage and this sermon, okay? So before we start, you have to understand what a catch-22 is. You know what I mean when I say call something a catch-22? And you have to understand what the Bible means when it calls someone poor. All right, we'll do catch-22 first. A catch-22 is a situation somebody finds himself in where they're, they're stuck. It seems like they have two different paths to get out of this situation, but they both lead to nowhere, or they cancel each other out. I mean, example is a better way to define this, really, than define it. Let's say you want to get a job in a certain field, but you keep getting told you can't get a job in that field because you don't have any experience, right? So I can't get a job in this field because I don't have any experience, but I can't get any experience in this field without getting a job right? Two options that seem like they're there, and they both cancel each other out. It's a catch-22. Keep that in mind. We'll be back to that later. Second thing you have to understand is what biblical, biblically poor means. For us here in America, when we talk about poor, we usually are talking about somebody that just doesn't compare well to the other people around. Usually, people we consider in America to be poor, or sometimes we consider ourselves to be poor financially, we still have all the same kinds of stuff richer people have. It's just ours isn't as cool, or we don't have as many of it, or something like that, right? So if I think I'm poor and somebody else isn't poor, I mean, I still have a plenty good house, I have plenty to eat. I have lots of clothes. Um, I, we probably have one or two or three cars. But the, person I, the other person I look at, I do things for entertainment, but the other person I look at, they have those same things. They're ju- theirs are just a lot cooler than mine. So it makes me feel like I'm poor. All right, that's not biblical poor. Okay? Jesus is going to use the word poor today. And when the Bible talks about the poor... It's a, it's a different scenario. Because in Jesus' day, almost everybody would be considered by us to be poor. You know why? We would compare them to us and they would have much less than us. And we think we're poor. To be poor in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as discretionary income for most people. You know what I mean by that? Like, what am I going to do with all this money that's left over after I pay for my food and shelter and clothes? Everything else is discretionary. I get to decide what I do with it. In Jesus' day, 
people had enough to like eat and have a place to live. Most people had one set of clothes at a time, right? You would need a lot less closet space, right? Um, survival was, if you had enough to feed your family on a daily basis, that's, you were with most people. So if you were poor, you were below that level. So when the Bible calls somebody poor, it carries the connotation always of real neediness. Of I can't take care of myself. I, I can't feed myself and my, my spouse, my kids. Like literally the poor were making decisions like, should we give our kids away? Because they're, they're, they're going to die if they stay with us. Okay, poor to the point of, if someone else doesn't have pity on me, I might be in, physically in real trouble. I could die. Exposure, starvation, things like that. Now, just for a second before we start, I want you to imagine for a second that you are that brand of poor. You can't take care of your family. You may have to give your kids away, enslave yourself. And if you imagine that, how do you imagine that would feel? Would you feel something bad, right? You'd feel sad. You'd maybe feel humiliated. You'd feel... Um, just very inadequate. You would feel, it, it would really be a sense almost of mourning the condition you were in. Would you agree with that? All right, now we're ready for this passage. Jesus just began his ministry in last week's passage, last half of chapter four of the book of Matthew. Uh, he, he, it's go time, he moves to Galilee, and he has this message, repent, you got to change your mind about some things because the kingdom of heaven, the king's here, and your chance to get into his kingdom is at hand. It's, it's at your doorstep. You don't know how many chances you're going to get. And then Jesus made disciples, invited people to become disciples. And we, as we talked about last week, you are the right kind of person to be a disciple of Jesus. It's the reason he started with Galilean fishermen, to show that anybody can do this. And now what today is, is for the first time in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to start teaching people who would follow him. And he's going to be challenging people's thinking, first and foremost, about how to get into his kingdom. It challenges religious thought of that day and every day. And what we begin today is what's normally called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's long. We're going to be in this thing a while. You think I preach a long time. You be quiet. Um, this is all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 is one sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And like I mentioned in the, in the music time, here's what it's not. It is not a list of everything you had better do if you want to go to heaven. It's not the list of everything you have to have and be or you're not in. 
It better not be or nobody's in. What it is, it's something of a handbook for doing life as a Christian. It's, it's a look at, well, here's how I kind of define it on the screen. It, the Sermon on the Mount describes a Christian's life, a follower of Jesus' life, when that person is fully submitted to Jesus. I will not live up to the Sermon on the Mount, neither will you. But when I am fully submitted to Jesus as my Lord, my Master, my Boss, my life will look like the Sermon on the Mount. And when my life doesn't look like the Sermon on the Mount, I got a submission problem. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be there a long time, partially because we're going to spend about three weeks in that passage John just read. (laughs) Really, we're going to spend three weeks in only the last four verses that he read. Because Jesus, the very first thing he teaches in Matthew are these special little sayings called the Beatitudes. And we're going to study the first four Beatitudes for about the next three weeks. They're so important. They're so foundational. They're so powerful. And it's my conviction that if you don't understand these first four Beatitudes correctly, you are not a Christian. Got your attention yet? If someone doesn't have a grasp of what is meant by these first four Beatitudes, I would really wonder if you are a saved person. So I'm glad you are here this morning. Because if you've ever wondered, if I'm going to heaven when I die, this is a good lesson for you to hear. Here's what the Beatitudes are. It just comes from a Latin word, beatus. It just means like blessing. They're blessing sayings. You heard those while John was reading, and you've heard these before. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. You've heard that, right? It's a beatitude because it starts with that. In the Latin translation, it starts with the word beatus. The beatitudes describe very various characteristics of one person or one kind of person who is submitted to Jesus, and who therefore will be blessed by God in various ways one day. And when I say, or when Jesus says blessed in this, here's what he means. Someday, God's going to congratulate this kind of person. Someday, God's going to improve their conditions, their circumstances. Someday, God's going to increase their joy better than they've ever known it. Okay, that's, but it's one kind of person. And that's really important to understand before we dive into this. Jesus doesn't give us a menu that you get to pick and choose from. In other words, you've heard these things before. As you read through there, if you were going something like this, if you were going, um, you know, I I don't know what poor in spirit means, but I'm probably not that. Um, And meek doesn't sound very good, so I don't even think I want to be that. But I mourn sometimes. And I hunger and thirst after righteousness. So I've got two of the four. And that's not bad for a batting average. And so I'll get half of God's blessing at some point. You're missing the point. All of these Beatitudes, and there are more after these four, they describe one kind of person who gets one kind of blessing. 
It's just that person has many different characteristics and that blessing has many different characteristics. And the reason I'm stopping after these first four is again, this is so foundational. If you don't get these concepts, I'm not sure you're a part of the kingdom. So this morning what I want to do is I want to just kind of hash out what these first four Beatitudes mean. Because I'll admit I didn't really understand what they meant until even studying this passage. So I, I want us to know what they are, what they mean, and then we can tell whether or not we agree, whether we're this kind of person. Then next week, and I know it's going to be after the fair, and you're going to be up late and all that stuff, but next week we're going to go back to these and we're going to talk about how we misapply these things and what happens in our lives when we, get, when we, when we, when we mess these up. Even those of us who are saved. And we'll do that for a couple of weeks. But, but first, we're going to just hash out what these four things mean. The, very, the first thing Jesus teaches in the book of Matthew, the first beatitude, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, here's why I wanted to make sure you, know, you understood what being biblically poor meant. Because even though Jesus wasn't talking about people who are financially poor, he uses the financial word to make his point. So if we don't know what that financial word means or meant in his day, we'll miss this. Being poor meant being needy, being unable to take care of myself, being I don't have uh, the capital to get what I need to survive. That's poor, right? So what's it mean to be poor in spirit? It means coming to the understanding that spiritually, I am destitute. I I do not have what I need to take care of myself spiritually. I do not have of myself and who I am and my track record. I do not have the ability to make God say, you are good enough I am broke spiritually. I'm bankrupt spiritually. I'm not good enough. That's the first step to being this kind of blessed person. Being poor in spirit means I understand what God said in the book of Isaiah very famously. That all of our righteous deeds are like what, church folks? They're like filthy rags before God. That's poor in spirit. Understanding. All right, I know I've done things wrong. I know I've messed some stuff up. But look at this good stuff I've done. You know, I did this, and I helped that old lady across the street that time, and I gave money there, and I did these good things. Being poor in spirit is understanding. That does as much good before the God of the universe as a pile of filthy rags. It's like taking God and saying, hey, I'm going to pay my entrance into the kingdom with this pile of filthy rags. I'm broke. I'm destitute. I cannot take care of myself. That's poor in spirit. And that's the first step toward being the kind of person that will be blessed, congratulated, their circumstances improved by the God of the universe. 
and the first blessing, <laughs> it's not that you just get into the kingdom. What's Jesus say? You own the darn thing. The poor in spirit don't just get in. They're co-owners. It's theirs. That's the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. All right, second beatitude comes in verse 4. When I asked you to imagine being that kind of poor, biblically poor, how did you imagine feeling? Sad, depressed, humiliated, maybe self-loathing, right? You would mourn your condition. Remember, these are not a menu you can pick and choose from. They go together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So when I get to the place, or when someone gets to the place where he or she understands, I am destitute before God. There, all the stuff, all the stuff I thought I did that meant something before God, that would make him look at me and go, hey, you're okay, you can come on in, look how good of a dude you are. When I get to the point where I understand, that didn't get me any closer to heaven than, I, than if I had never done them. When I get to the point where I understand I cannot stand at all, I can't make him owe me, I can't make him, what that should produce in me, I should feel about my spiritual condition the same way I should feel about my financial condition if I was biblically poor. In fact, worse. When I get to the point where I understand my poorness of spirit, I should mourn my condition. I mourn my sin, but I also mourn my righteousness. I mourn the things I thought made me okay with God. Because I mourn is not enough. I mourn because I have no spiritual pride. The person who's poor in spirit can have no spiritual pride. You know what I mean by that? The person who's poor in spirit and mourning because of it. They have no room to say, well, at least I'm not like those people. Because my poorness of spirit lets me know I'm just like those people. Like poor is poor, broke is broke. Let's say we went to a New Testament leper colony. How crazy would you find if you found a leper that thought he was better than all the rest of the lepers because he hadn't lost quite as many fingers. He didn't have quite as much leprous spots all over him. And he had a few more leprosy-filled, lice-ridden, filthy changes of clothes than everybody else at the leper colony. And he really thought he was something. You'd go, what is wrong with you? That's who we are when we forget our poorness of spirit and we lose our sense of mourning over who we are. All right, so thus far, the blessed person realizes they're destitute before God. It breaks their heart. They're not comforted, but they will be. So here's my next question. How do you get some comfort? If you get that far, you realize you're, you're broke before God 
You can't make him accept you. And that breaks your heart and makes you very uncomfortable. How do you start to get some comfort? Here's what you do. You're where I'm going to take this seriously now. I'm going to stop playing around. And I am going to stop doing this stuff. And I'm going to start doing this good stuff. I'm going to break these habits. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray three times a day. I'm going to brush my teeth three times a day. Maybe that will help. I'm going to give. I'm going to be generous. And then maybe I won't feel so uncomfortable about my condition. Is that, is that how we get some comfort? The answer is no. And the third beatitude tells us why. This is Jesus is so smart. This one is awesome. Like, I can't believe how awesome this is. And it sounds so simple. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You don't even have to have grown up in church. You've heard this. But you know what it means. (laughs) Meek doesn't sound like something you want to be, does it? Like, you probably don't know what it is, but it don't sound good. Right? It sounds like weak, And I don't want to be weak. It's not weak. Here's the example I always use to define, to help explain meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It sounds like it. Sometimes it looks like it. But meekness and weakness aren't the same thing. I always say it's like a a big stallion who has decided the best thing, the the best way to live life is to do what his rider, his, his owner says. There's no point where the horse isn't stronger than the rider. Right? If he wanted to, he could buck him off and stomp him to death, probably. You just decide that's not best. So he's meek without being weak. That's who inherits the earth. Here's my definition, though, and this is how I want us to think of it. To be meek, or meekness is the refusal to attempt to improve one's situation or forward one's cause. Meekness is the refusal to attempt to improve one's situation or forward one's own cause. That's who inherits the earth, which is the same thing as owning the kingdom. And here's what that means. If you're, if you're, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, if you're with Jesus so far, here's where we're at. The one who is blessed, this one person, grasps his utter poverty before God, mourns that condition, and then is meek about it, which means, I understand, I can't even attempt to fix this condition I'm in. Does that make sense? That's the first three things. First three beatitudes. I'm poor in spirit. I'm broke before God. Uh, It breaks my heart. And in in meekness, I understand, I can't even try to fix this condition that breaks my heart. You with me that far? But I I forgot to tell you, you have to think a lot in this sermon. If I'd have told you that to begin with, some of you would have left early. Now here comes the catch-22. If someone gets to this point, I'm broke before God, it breaks my heart, and I understand I can't even try to do anything about it. If that's what Jesus is saying, and it is, then I want you to tell me how this can possibly be true. Because the fourth beatitude, the very next thing out of his mouth, Jesus says this, blessed is that same person 
who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Do you see the conundrum here? I had never seen this till this time, so let me, let me explain what I feel like is a catch-22 here. Or Jesus is setting us up to feel like there's one. If you know you're destitute before God, if, you, if it breaks your heart, and if you know there is nothing I can do to fix my condition, I can't even try to fix my condition. If, so, so if, if the, the reason my heart is broken is because I'm completely unrighteous, what's the logical way to fix that? Start being righteous. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's where I'm going to quit this stuff. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do good. I'm going to be so good. God's going to look down and say, that's more like it. That's my boy. Now I love you. And I start to get some comfort because I'm fixing my unrighteousness. If that's what verse 6 means, if that's what the fourth beatitude means is, you better take this serious. If you want in this kingdom, you better stop doing this stuff and start doing this stuff. If that's what that means, guess what? You just violated the first three beatitudes. Because if I'm suddenly doing way better and sinning way less, I probably don't feel completely penniless before God. I'm definitely not mourning my condition anymore. I used to mourn that condition when I was that guy. I'm doing way better now. And I'm absolutely not meek because I have taken the initiative to make myself better. But, so what if I do the other way? What if I understand the first three? I'm broke before God. It breaks my heart. I know I can't do anything about it. So, who cares? can't fix this. So I'm just going to keep right on doing what I've always done. And I never develop any hunger or any thirst for any righteousness. Well, that pretty obviously breaks the fourth beatitude too. When I mentioned earlier... I can't imagine how terrifying this is. If any of Jesus' original audience really grasped this, this is a terrifying message. Because what it says is you have to understand you're completely broke before God. You can't do anything about it. And everybody knows, if, but if I'm not righteous, I don't get in. And as soon as I hunger and thirst after righteousness I can do, I break the first three. I'm, I got a hunger after a righteousness I can't grasp. And as soon as I try, I'm no longer the blessed person. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus is the master at teaching things that make people go, wait a minute, what? How can this possibly be true? This doesn't sound like it can be true. But it is. Here, the only answer to this apparent catch-22 is that the righteousness we had better hunger and thirst after is something that we cannot attain through our effort. 
Like we can obtain it, but not attain it. The only righteousness that will satisfy is righteousness we can't even try to get. It must be given. You know what the righteousness we need is? It is a spiritual handout to somebody who is completely destitute. Here's what Jesus says. Before you can get into this kingdom, you have to understand you'll never deserve to get into this kingdom. That should break your heart. And you better understand you can't even try to make yourself good enough to get in here. But that shouldn't create in you hopelessness and despair. It should like get you right to the edge of it though. (laughs) It should get you right to the edge that says, oh no, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to get in there. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-huh, now you're getting there. You're almost there. What that should create in me is not hopelessness. It should create in me a a desire for righteousness that even though I can't grasp it, it's such a basic desire. It's like a hunger and a thirst in my soul. I want to be found righteous before this God because they're the only people that get into his kingdom. But I can't get righteous. What do I do? In a little bit, or later in this book, Jesus will stand up and say, Come to me, all you who are weary. I will... Give you rest. Jesus did not come to point out people's unrighteousness so he could tell them to start getting better, stop doing that, and you start doing this. He pointed out their unrighteousness so he could tell them, I want to give you mine. It's what Paul, you know what? This concept right here is so foundational. Paul wrote basically the entire book of Romans about these four Beatitudes, in a way. I'm not saying that this was, that he did that on purpose. And I want to read, just read with you one passage from Romans. I'm not even going to tell you where to look it up, because I want you to read it off the screen. This is in the New Living Translation, NLT. If you're looking for a Bible that you can understand, get an NLT. It's a solid translation. And I love this rendering of Romans chapter 3 that explains the first four Beatitudes wonderfully. Romans 3, verses 20 through 26, say this. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, by obeying, by doing better. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now, on this side of the cross... Now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. How? He did this through Christ Jesus when Jesus freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And later in verse 26, 
God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when? When they believe in Jesus. All right, so let me ask you a couple of questions this morning. I said, if you don't understand the concepts in those four Beatitudes, I'm not sure you're a Christian. Ultimately, that's between you and God. So let me just ask you a couple things. I'm talking to you, not your aunt or uncle that's here this morning or somebody else. I'm talking to you. Do you, what do you think your condition is before God right now? And there's a good yes answer, there's a good I'm fine answer, and there's a good I'm not fine answer. Just honestly, in your heart of hearts, how do you think you are with God? Does God look at you and say, yeah, you're acceptable, you're, you're in? Does God find you acceptable? If in your hearts you believe the answer to that is yes, I want you to ask yourself this, why do I think that? Why do I think I'm okay with God? Do you think God finds you acceptable? Because you're better than most of the Christians you know. At least I'm not like those people. I don't have that list of problems. Here's a list of sins I've never sinned. My good outweighs my bad. Now, Seth, go to that last slide for me. To be okay with God, you have to have a righteousness that is beyond your ability to grasp. It must be given. And so first, you have to understand that you have zero ability to be seen as good enough by God on your own. You have zero ability. Me too. Second, you must understand that, you have, that even if you try to get good enough for God to accept you, to love you, it's like you're disqualified. You've got to remain meek, Jesus said. You can't even try to be good enough to be accepted by Him. And, that, but, and then finally, you take that sense, that, that, that almost hopelessness, that mourning in your soul and, and make that turn into a hunger and a thirst for a righteousness you could never earn but that God promises to give to all those who believe. That's where Jesus brought people that whenever, that morning, that afternoon, whenever this was, and he sat down that hill and said, let me tell you something, you're broke before my father. If you're not, you ain't getting in. That should break your heart, your condition, your, your sin and your, your wretchedness and your righteousness should break your heart. And then you better understand you can't do anything to fix that. And if that develops in you a, a hunger to be found acceptable before God, Jesus would say, you're right on the precipice of the kingdom. You're right there. And he's going to explain through the rest of this book and the rest of the New Testament hashes out what we do to get that righteousness 
is just ask the one who has it. We just say, Lord Jesus, I, I want to be found acceptable by God. And I believe because you paid for my unrighteousness on the, sin, on, the, on the cross. You paid for my sin on the cross. I ask you, give me your righteousness. And then you know what happens? When you get Jesus' righteousness, because it's perfect, it's equal righteousness to the Father, then when God looks at you, he has no choice to let you, but to let you in. Because to him, you look like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am broke spiritually. Every hour of every day, based on my track record of goodness and badness, I am penniless before you. And that produces a sense of mourning and humiliation and it strips away my pride. And Lord, even though I've been bad at this one, I understand I must be meek. I must refuse to even try to fix my own unrighteousness. But Lord, I hunger and I thirst to be what I could never be on my own, to be righteous before the God of the universe. I thank you for giving me what I could not earn and taking on yourself what you did not earn, which was my sin. God, help us remember this, that we are broken sinners hungering and thirsting after a righteousness that is only given freely. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.